Uh, have you seen the, um, the movie The Darkest Hour? It's, it's nominated for six Academy Awards. Uh, if, if, you've, if you like history, you will, you will enjoy that because it gives you, I think, a real appreciation for what the British people were going through in those opening months of uh, World War II. Um, Winston Churchill, that's a movie about Winston Churchill and just a, a small part of that first 30 days. He became prime minister on May uh, 10th in 1940. Europe was being ravaged. The juggernaut of Nazism was uh, clamping down all over Europe. It did not look good for the British people. Uh, Churchill, three days later after being uh, called as prime minister, he meets before the House of Commons and he delivers those, um, those, I think, terrifying words, it must have been, sobering words to the British people when he said, I offer you nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Man, imagine what that would be like listening to the radio and hearing your, your, your country's leader. I offer you nothing. No sugarcoating. This is the real deal. Blood toil, tears, and sweat. A solemn moment, a call to sacrifice, costly commitment to the point of maybe even giving one's life. There was another leader centuries before who said similar words of solemnity, similar words of sacrifice and and cost and commitment and death, blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And it was our Lord Jesus Christ as He gathered His disciples and He said, this is what is involved in being my disciple. I invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to me to Luke chapter 14. We've just spent uh, just a few weeks focusing on this theme of what is a disciple. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus said this is what a disciple is. It's someone who is subordinate to the master. It's someone who lives their life in submission to the master, to the Lord, who understands who the Lord is. It's a person, he said in Matthew 10, that imitates the master. He said it's enough that a disciple be as his master as, as the teacher. In John chapter 8, we looked at that passage last week as well, and Jesus said, if you abide in my word, if you, if you remain steadfast and consistent, if you have ears to hear, if you find great enjoyment and great satisfaction, but you are applying consistently what I'm teaching, my words, he said, if you abide in my words, then you can wear the label disciple, because that's what a disciple is. Well, in this passage this morning, it's like he, he just raises the bar way up here. When he says, starting in verse 25, these words, the large crowds were going along with him. He turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, 
does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to finish it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to complete it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, and they say, this man began to build and yet was not able to finish. Or, verse 31, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. There's some principles, obviously, from this passage about discipleship. What, in, what is involved in a disciple, what, what a, a characteristic of a disciple is, and it starts with utmost loyalty. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, you can't be my disciple. Now, Obviously, Jesus is not saying that literally you hate your families because that would contradict Scripture elsewhere. What Jesus is doing is using an Old Testament uh, Semitic nuance of the idea of hatred meaning to love less. Or to say it in another way, you value something so infinitely more that all other values seem very, very insignificant. If you come to me, Jesus said, your affections for me, your heart for me, your love for me must be the highest of all. Your loyalty for me cannot compete with your loyalty in any other relationships. He's driving home the point of possessing a supreme and incomparable love and loyalty for him alone. Our love, our devotion for the Lord, Jesus said, must transcend any, any other love and loyalties that exist. So much so that if you were to compare your love for Christ, all other loves would look like hatred. Leon Morris, uh, a, a scholar, a theologian who's now with the, with the Lord, wrote in his book, The Cross in the New Testament, he said, Jesus is calling for a loyalty and a love beside which all earthly loyalties pale into insignificance and all earthly loves look like hatred. It's, it's what Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 10. He who loves father and mother more than me, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Strong words, aren't they? These are shocking words. First experiences of life can be very... Um, they're, they're unforgettable oftentimes. 30 years ago was when I had my first um, overseas missions uh, encounter experience. I went to India, flew into Delhi, took a train over to Gorakhpur with a, another friend, and we drove up to Kathmandu, Nepal. 
I'd never been overseas, and I never um, sat with fellow believers who knew what persecution was all about. Nepal at that time was a, a Hindu monarchy, and Christians were, well, to be one was illegal. We had found that it was arranged ahead of time a, 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 a hotel that, whose owner was sympathetic to Christians, and we had a gathering of, of about 15 to 20 Nep Nepalese pastors that gathered in this room for a time of study and, and prayer and, and um, just inputting lives together. It was about the second day we were there for that week, and there was a knock at the door. And in walked in Royal Nepali police. And I tell you, you can look at the eyes of these pastors and at their heart just, you, it just sunk. We had been found out. One of the young men there, he was about my age, Balram was his name, and uh, I had gotten to know him a little bit those couple of days we had been together. He had been um, disowned by his parents when he trusted Jesus as a Savior. And he'd served time in prison as well. And when those policemen walk in, you could just see his countenance fall. Uh, fortunately, and the, the Indian man we were with, Jai, he, he had jumped up right away and met these guys at the door and started talking with them. And five minutes later, they turned around, kind of chuckled and smiled and walked away. It was like, wow, now there was a miracle happening right before our eyes. And Jai explained, there was a, uh, an Asian economic summit that was going on in Kathmandu that week. And these police walked in and says, look, we're not looking for Christians today. We're looking for terrorists. So he said, you're free today. So, well, that's nice. But that was my first encounter with someone who understood what it meant to be disowned by mother and father and brothers and sisters for the cause of Christ. I had never seen that before. And it was right there before my very eyes. Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, your love, your loyalty for me has to transcend every other love and loyalty. Now, I don't, I don't know what that looks like for you. I, I'm not even sure necessarily what it looks like for me. I know Jesus said it. I mean, there it is. I, I've got it in the red letter edition, the words of Jesus. What might that look like? It might mean that your parents may want you to be a doctor, but God is calling you to be a guidance counselor in an inner city school. And so you do what Jesus wants you to do because your, your love, your loyalty for him exceeds anyone else's. It might mean that a, that a father is going to forego family time one night a week, not put his kids to bed, be absent dad because he's discipling another young man whose marriage has fallen apart. I don't know what it would look like. It might mean that a, a mom is going to spend less time with her children to devote more time inputting her heart and life into her husband because that's what Jesus is calling her to do. And her love and loyalty to him supersedes her love and loyalty to her children. It may mean saying goodbye to elderly parents and returning to the mission field. I, I'm not sure what it would look like. 
But Jesus said, this is what a disciple looks like. Their love, their loyalty to him supersedes all else. He said it's it's in a class all of its own. It's unique. If, If God were to pass before our eyes right now, the faces, the names of, of everyone that we hold most dear, the people that we love the most, Jesus would say, am I at the top of the list? There's a second characteristic in this passage. It's the characteristic of, of self-denial. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. You don't carry your cross. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, he says, you pick up your cross daily. You can't be my disciple. Can you imagine when they heard the word cross, what must have gone through the mind of people in that day reading this? You're surrounded by everywhere the stench of Rome, Roman soldiers, the 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 um, uh, cruelty of the Roman crucifixion that they had concocted to do away with criminals, nailing someone to a cross, the agonizing death. And now Jesus is saying, you've got to pick up your cross. You've got to follow me. Now, obviously, he's not talking about carrying your wooden beam and carrying it around every day. But neither is he talking about those little aches and pains of life that we say, well, that's my cross to bear. Uh, Noisy neighbor, a contentious wife, a lazy husband, that's my cross to bear. No, Jesus is focusing on the important principle that being a disciple means a renouncing of self, a denouncing of self of saying no to what I want in life, saying yes. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And he's telling people now to pick up their own cross, get in step behind him. No matter what, they have to sacrifice. If you want to be my follower, my disciple, then say no to the script that you want to write for your life. And you have to say yes to the one I want to write for your life. We're ultimately, Jesus says, to die to self. To die so that we can live for him. The cross is also, I think, a symbol of of one's mission. The cross was Jesus' consummated end. It was here to go to the cross. It was his mission. Pick up your cross. In one sense, we share a similar goal as believers in Jesus Christ, to follow Christ wholeheartedly, to to go make disciples. But I think also individually in our life, God has a plan for us. He's calling us to a certain life. It'll look different for you than it looks for me. Uh, Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, for by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. And then in verse 10, he says, and we were created in Christ Jesus. The word means we, we, he fashioned us as a work of art. We were created in Christ Jesus, he says, unto good works that we should walk in them. By the way, that is 
just a little aside, that's written in a, in, a, in a Greek mood. It's called subjunctive mood, which means it may happen, it may not happen. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we should walk, that we hopefully will walk in them. But we first have to pick up our cross and follow Him as a disciple. There's a third characteristic of a disciple of Jesus in this passage. It's this idea of informed commitment, informed commitment. Christ illustrated that in that passage where He says, um, if you're going to build a tower, you're going to sit and calculate the cost, figure it out. Or the king, you're not going to meet another king in battle. You've got to sit down and kind of figure, figure it out. And Jesus is saying the same thing of us. We're going to follow Christ takes a certain amount of informed commitment. He's not asking us to go blindly into this. He's saying, before you say, I do, you better say, I understand. This is what is at stake to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Give careful thought. Understand the conditions. Realize that blood, toil, tears, and sweat await you. Pick up your cross then and follow me. Informed commitment. Three characteristics, three stringent requirements to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, a word of caution. Be careful here. Jesus is not mapping out a roadmap on how to get to heaven. He's talking about how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I tell you what, I am so glad this morning that my entrance into heaven isn't based upon my loyalty to him superseding all other loyalties. I am so glad that my entrance into heaven isn't based upon how well I perform how often I pick up my cross and follow him. For if it was, I'd have to wait till I die and see my life and see if it all weighed out as a disciple. The good news of the Bible, though, is that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The good news of the Bible is Jesus did for us what we were incapable of doing. That he fulfilled the Father's righteous requirements and demands for entrance into heaven. Jesus left the throne in glory. As perfect God became, became perfect man and walked this earth and exposed to all the, the sin and all the trials and all the temptations, he lived a perfect life examined in his life, he was a perfect spotless lamb that went to the sacrificial altar. He died on the cross for our sins. And the father was pleased, absolutely 100% satisfied with what his son did in pain for our sins. And he raised him from the dead on the third day. And so now he offers to all of us undeserving sinners no way in our own efforts could we ever achieve heaven, but Jesus did it for us. And so he offers the free gift of eternal life. I'm so glad this morning I can share with every one of you 
there's a free gift for you. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, if you came here this morning thinking, well, I, you know, I, uh, hopefully I, God sees me in church today or, you know, I've tried to live this good life. I'm trying to obey the Ten Commandments. I'm trying to do these things. I've given some money to missions and I'm trying to do this. And maybe he'll weigh it all out at the end and the good works will outweigh the bad works. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. And the good news today is it's already a done deal. Jesus did it all. He's offering you this morning a free gift of eternal life by simply putting your trust in Christ, what he did for you. And that moment of faith, and that moment of believing, do, do you believe what I just said? It's right here in the Bible. When you transfer your trust off of what you do onto what Christ alone has done, in that moment of faith, the Bible says, your sins are forgiven, you're given a free gift of eternal life. But then... Hear him and hear him well. He says, I offer you now nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat if you want to be my disciple. Getting eternal life is a free gift. Being a disciple is extremely costly. Count the cost. Jesus summarizes all this in verse 33. When he says, so then, it's like, let me wrap this all up. <laughs> None of you can be my disciple. None of you, there's not a person in this room, in this world, that can wear the label disciple unless, he says, you give up all your possessions. Not merely our money and material things, our loved ones, our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our plans, our script for our life. Give it up. The idea is to separate yourself, say goodbye to it, renounce it, forsake it. Being a disciple says goodbye to me and what I want, to my rights. It says yes to our Lord. My wealth and possessions are yours. So direct me, Lord. H how do you want this to be spent? My children are yours. Father, how do you want me to raise them? My relationships are under your control. I will honor you with them. My goals, my dreams, my hopes are yours. Lord, I'm just going to lay it before you. Whatever you want, I, I just, just direct me. I will follow you. I will follow you. I will listen. I will hear from you. I will follow you. I will submit to what you want for my life. You see, a disciple is one who understands what the martyred missionary Jim Elliot once said, that he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Jesus would ask us, are you a disciple? of mine? Well, while we're pondering that question, let me share with you another key characteristic of a disciple. He said in John chapter 13, these words, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, 
how we treat one another, how we love one another. He emphasized it over and over, one another. How you love one another is an indicator of whether or not we are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And people listening to this Originally, the words of Jesus, there's nothing new about that commandment. In fact, the Old Testament is summarized by those two laws. You love God with all your strength, soul, heart, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. The whole Old Testament law hangs on those two commandments. But look at it again. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And what's the newness of the commandment? Not as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. It puts it again in another whole class of its own. A a love that is sacrificial, a love that is self-denying, a love that is looking out for the other person, even if it costs us everything. Love as I loved you. The one who went to the cross, despising the shame, submitted himself to ridicule and torture and sin, our sin placed upon him. He did that because he loved us. And he says, if you want to be a disciple, you got to love with that same kind of love. Now, a sermon like this, and like the last couple of weeks, I think can cause any of us to maybe react in three different ways or, or various ways. One way that we can react is to just be discouraged. It's like, good grief. Do you, no, you don't. I was going to say, do you know what I struggle with? And you don't. I don't know necessarily what you struggle with. And we can hear a message like this and the, the, the bars raise this high and it's like, I, I will never. You've got to be kidding me. I guess I, I love me too much to... I, I, don't, I, just, I don't think I can do this. Discouragement. Or a response of apathy. It's like, quite frankly, I, I like my life. I'm content where I am. I kind of like living for me. I kind of like what I'm doing with my resources, my money, my life. I'm pretty content. Blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Let the other guy do that. I'm going to get to heaven. I'm going to coast there anyway, right? I've trusted Christ as my Savior. There could be a response, a third response. It's just a response of, of legalism. You hear a message like this, and so you clench your jaw, and you pound your fist and said, by George, and you walk out of here, and I'm going to, I'm going to be a disciple of, of Jesus. I, I'm going to die for Jesus even if it kills me. <laughs> And so we redouble our efforts and in our own strength and we're going to just work and we're going to, we're going to, and we're going to make everybody miserable in the process. And I'll guarantee you, we'll very quickly slip into the first two categories. We'll walk away eventually either discouraged or we'll throw up our hands in apathy. The hard sayings and calls to costly discipleship, these, these are true. These are legitimate calls. And so there's really a fourth response that I think the Bible teaches us, and it's the response of faith 
faith-filled resolve. Faith-filled resolve to follow him wholeheartedly. Faith-filled in the sense that his enabling strength, his enabling power mightily works within me. It's a mentality that says there is no way I can do this. And instead of getting discouraged or apathetical or legalistic, we step out in faith-filled resolve and saying, but what I can't do, you can do in me. Jesus, and I don't, think, I don't think it was meant as a teaser to the disciples, but shortly before he was crucified, he, he said things like this, John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I'm going to go to the Father. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. A little bit later, he says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to give you a helper. In chapter 15, Jesus said, again, shortly, hours before he's crucified, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And if you abide in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me. You can do nothing. And the disciples, if they were listening to the words of costly discipleship, they would say, you're right, I can't do that. And Jesus is saying, but I'm giving you a helper. Of course, it's not till little few weeks later and months later as the apostles are writing the epistles that the full understanding of what Jesus was saying about the helper coming, the presence of his Holy Spirit within us. Peter would write in 2 Peter, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. Talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit that reproduces the life of Christ in us. That life that's characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. The life of a disciple. It's the Holy Spirit who, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, says that the strict requirements, the demands of, of, of the Father are met in us who walk not according to our own strength, but according to the power that is within us, the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who, according to Ephesians chapter 5, is given to us to control us. And as we walk in His strength, controlled by His presence, we redeem the time. We act as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's what John the Baptist actually said in chapter 3, I think verse 31, when he said, I must decrease and he must increase, and it's the Spirit of the living God that empowers every one of us that as we learn to get out of the way and let him shape us and work in us, progressively more and more, the life of discipleship becomes more and more of a reality in our life, progressively growing. How does it happen? Let me just mention five things as we kind of wrap up here. I think it starts with confession. It, it simply says, Lord, I cannot do this. In fact, everything I do is, gonna, is, is goof. <laughs> everything you do is good. 
Lord, I confess to you that when I take charge, when I write the script for my life, it ends up a miserable failure because all I'm going to write in is what I want in life, and I confess that. Too many times, Lord, I quench your spirit. I grieve your heart. We start with confession, and then we move to consecration, which is similar to what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice. Lord, this morning, as I get up this morning, I'm just going to crawl up on the altar. And I'm asking you, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Lord, I don't know how this day is going to go, but you're my master, you're my Lord. I want to be your disciple, and I can't do it apart from your strength. And so I give myself to you. Control me. Then there's communion. See, walking by the Spirit is based on a, a relationship with the Lord and not just a regimen of doing something. It's a time in the Word. It's time in prayer. It's growing in intimacy. It's finding out more and more and more about this great God that we serve. It's time in His Word, abiding in His Word. It's an encounter with the living God. And it, like any relationship, it takes time to nurture it communion with him. And then there's conformity, obedience, a resolve to say, Lord, I have decided to follow you. And here I see in your word, this is what it says. And so, Father, I don't know how I'm going to do that. Love that coworker who is in pain in the you-know-what. Have patience with my children when I'm on my last nerve. but in your power and your strength, I'm going to do the next right thing. Boom. And you walk in faith. You get out of bed in the morning, you take that next step, and in his power and strength as you're communing him, I can't do this, Lord. I'll never do it. I can never be a disciple of yours. And you hear him say, not I, but I in you. And we do the next right thing. And let me add a fifth, community. Because you see, again, None of us are designed to live in isolation. We're part of a body of believers. We desperately need authentic fellowship. That's why the counseling team is putting together this conference for us. We need to be pointed to Jesus Christ because it's amazing how quickly I forget. But that's why God has given me a, a wife who loves Jesus and loves me enough to say, you're not looking like him much today and now adult children <laughs> who are doing the same things, or a, a, a staff team, or elders, or uh, maybe it's your community group, or your small group, but we need community because we all have our, like Tom, uh, Mark Twain says, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side, and we all have our blind spots. Want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Here's five things to consider. Let me wrap this up. There was two verses I I didn't read in Luke chapter 14. Verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, therefore. He's kind of wrapping all this up, and he says, therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is, it is thrown out. And he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And again, people of that day would certainly know what he's talking about. Salt used for seasoning, yes, like here. And a preservative, yes, and even a fertilizer. The value of salt, but what is the value when it loses its saltiness? It becomes, he says, useless. Why did Jesus end this little discussion of discipleship, talking about salt that is unsavory, that loses its saltiness? Because he's warning us, don't become unusable for the master. He says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be my disciple. And I will offer you nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Oh, and by the way, I will offer you a fresh supply of grace every morning. And my mercies are new every day. My faithfulness, my kindness, and my enabling power, I will never leave you nor forsake you because I love you. Now pick up that cross and you follow me. Do you want to be usable for the master? It's called discipleship. And it ain't easy. But oh, what a ride. Oh, what a joy to walk lockstep with the master. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, to call us into an everlasting relationship with you. We don't deserve it. My, oh my, how you love us. And then, Father, to, to not leave us an orphan, you, you, to give us a helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to enable us, to empower us, to conform us and shape us into the image of, of your son, Jesus, a disciple imitating, looking like uh, our master. And you do all this, Father, for us. And yet you call us to deny ourselves, pick up the cross, to love you supremely above all other loves, to take everything that we own, everything that we think we own and have and, and say they're yours. And Father, it's the grace does that. <laughs> Your grace compels us to do that. And so Father, Teach us your ways. Show us your heart. Help us to follow after you wholeheartedly. In Christ's name, amen.